Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 396th edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're broadcasting across the world in this, our ninth year, from the wonderful city of Los Angeles, where entertainment meets technology. I had a great um, Memorial Day long weekend, and I hope you did too, if you're in America. If you're outside America and you didn't get a holiday, well, bad luck. (laughs) We've only got four more shows until our 400th show. That's a pretty big achievement, we think. So look forward to that. We'll probably do something special. Now, Thomas Edison once said, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is to always try just one more time. Now, many of our journeys towards our goals may not be as easy as we expected, but the twists and turns that we face are what makes it worthwhile, or so they say. Many of the greatest successes in, the, in history are by the people that tried and dared to fail, but no matter what the odds, they didn't give up. You know, Thomas Edison's teachers said that he was too stupid to learn anything, and then he got his first job and he was fired for being non-productive. So he got another job and he was fired again. <laughs> but as an inventor, Edison made a thousand unsuccessful attempts at inventing the light bulb. I would have given up at about 10. When, um, when Edison was asked, how did it feel to fail 1,000 times, Edison said, I didn't fail 1,000 times. The light bulb was an invention with a 1,000 steps. That's a pretty cool answer. Confucius said, our greatest glory is not in never failing, but in rising every time we fail. Now, many people respond to a crisis by being overwhelmed, which turns to fear It's very easy to be afraid when you've a crisis situation in your business. You know, you start imagining all sorts of things. Your mind runs wild. But if you remain tough, your employees will remain tough as well. And together, a strong team will be able to turn almost anything around. Now, if you want a few examples of perseverance, here's a few. Walt Disney went to over 200 banks before getting the financing for Disneyland. He was also fired by a newspaper editor because he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. Can you imagine going into a bank and saying, hey, I want to build this park after a couple of mice (laughs) and I want $200 million. Yeah, right, okay, sure. Now, Colonel Sanders knocked on over 1,000 restaurant doors before getting his first customer, 
knocked on a thousand doors. Just imagine a thousand people saying no to you before you get the first person who says yes. And he was already 67 years old. And now there's not anyone in the world that hasn't had Colonel Sanders and lived to regret it. Now, I love Colonel Sanders. I think it's terrific. I really do like it. My wife hates it. But Fred Smith's Yale professor gave him a C for his thesis on overnight delivery service, saying it wasn't feasible. So he went out and, fund and founded Federal Express. <laughs> so much for that Yale professor. Charles Carlson invented photography, uh, photocopies in, in 1938, but it took him 21 years to get the first Xerox machine made. 21 years of trying. It's a lot of your life, isn't it? Michael Blake, the author of Dances with Wolves, had 26 years of rejection of Dances with Wolves before he could finally get it published. Bob Dylan, he was booed off the stage at his first talent quest. And John Creasy, yeah, the mega famous author, received 753 rejection slips before he published the first of his 564 books. So it just goes to show you, perseverance pays. So from rejection to workplace screw-ups, everyone's experienced that all-too-familiar gut-wrenching numbness. The great paradox is that the people who enjoy the most successes often endure the most failures. Let me tell you a few common-sense things that you should remember. Don't lose confidence in yourself when things don't go as planned. Improve your relationship with people because it's your relation with relationships with people that make you successful. That's in both life and in business. And it takes hard work to make dreams into, into reality. If you set clear goals, have the self-confidence to do it, and you believe that you'll succeed, you'll get to where you want to go. Get regular exercise. The benefits are a sense of health and youthfulness, increased physical and mental energy, well-being, productivity, which all leads to success. Outlearn your competition, be obsessed with learning, and be a reader. Ask. There are always people that we can learn from. Everyone should have a mentor that helps them on their path to success. Make a schedule that includes time for work and also time for weekends away, hobbies and family life. If we're willing to try and to get back after falling and we take advantage of opportunities, those bad moments can be nothing but a footnote in our success story. What's very interesting in business is that 96% of salespeople stop calling after receiving less than six rejections. Now, a Dartnell Corporation study shows that most business accounts are won after the prospect has said no eight times. Success is stumbling from failure to failure, 
with no loss of enthusiasm. Now, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've got about 1.75 daily subscribers. It takes 30 seconds to read each day, and each day we tackle a different subject. We tackle Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, um, health, education, all sorts of things. Today's newsletter is about how wireless carriers around the world are beginning to deploy 5G. It talks about what 5G is and what it can do and what it can't. And so the one thing you can trust for latest up-to-date business information is the Bob Pritchard newsletter. And to get it, you simply go to bobpritchard.com and subscribe. Now, the latest Health of the Air report looked at the health effects of particulate matter and ozone pollution above ATS recommended levels and the annual number of premature deaths associated with these substances fell from about 12,500 in 2010 to 7,000 in 2017. Together, the pollutants were also responsible for some 15,000 serious injuries, illnesses, sorry, down from nearly 27,000 in 2010. So you can see there's been a significant decrease. And these changes were driven almost entirely by improvements in particular matter pollution. And US air quality has improved dramatically since the Clean Air Act was passed in 1970. Subsequent addendums to the law and newer policies like regulations on vehicle emissions and the Obama-era clean power plan have also reduced air pollution and therefore deaths and sickness. Now, since 2010, mortality associated with particulate matter, which is the cause of health problems including respiratory issues, cancer and heart disease, fell by 60%. But when the Trump administration began to roll back environmental protections, these has caused more cities to have more days of high particulate and ozone pollution. In fact, in the new ATS report, more than 80% now of the 726 counties analysed by the ATS for ozone levels did not meet the group's standards. We can't roll back environmental rulings, and they're being rolled back constantly. Now, the US Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, is now planning to replace the Clean Power Plan with a new rule relaxing some of the regulations for the energy industry. They're going to use a new calculation system to reduce the reported number of premature deaths. Now, of course, they're not going to reduce the number of deaths. They're just going to report it differently so there's looks, so it looks like there's less. It's going to look like there's an additional 1,400 less deaths per year. Now, that's pretty pathetic, isn't it? However, they say that... There is little to no health benefit in making the air any cleaner. Now, what a bunch of crap that is. And experts say that assuming there are no health benefits beyond what's decreed by the law totally defies rational thinking and is very bad policy. 
It's just more Trump bullshit playing with our lives. It's very unfortunate. Now, my interview guest today is Sebastian Higgs. He's Director of Business Development at Vault, but it's spelled trickily, tricky, trickily, trickily. It's spelled very strangely at V-O numerical number one T. And they provide the world's most secure cold storage vault for digital assets. Vault secures its clients' assets with military-grade inscription and offering immunity to most known attack vectors. Now, if you're interested in cryptocurrency, which you absolutely should be, stick around. This is a really great interview. I enjoyed it immensely. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with Sebastian Higgs. He's in London in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. We're over the past nine years. Boy, that's a long time. It doesn't seem that long. We've given you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people and their... Uh, exciting new and usually disruptive initiatives. What we do is we talk to the entrepreneurs behind these projects. We talk about the services that they provide, the challenges that they've faced, and we try to ascertain what it is that makes them tick, what makes them special. How do they succeed when 99% of all other entrepreneurs fail? So they must be doing something right and something different. Now, Sebastian Higgs is Director of Business Development at Vault, which is V-O-1-T, which is just spelt like that to confuse most mere mortals. And they combine cutting-edge system design with cybersecurity best practices to create the world's most secure cold storage vault for digital assets. Now, prior to joining Vault, Sebastian was head of business development at Lending Block, which is a securities lending platform for 
cryptocurrencies and digital assets, where he was responsible for winning new business and client relationship management. Prior to that, he worked in liquidity and collateral management at Goldman Sachs in London, where he managed client OTC derivatives portfolios. So, what is Vault? It is a security ecosystem that provides a custody and a depository solution with a market-leading infrastructure and system. Now, I'm not sure what all that means, but we'll find out in a minute. Beyond that, Vault's prime account and staking services make it possible to return yields on assets held in cold storage. I think that's a big plus. Vault secures its clients' assets with military-grade encryption and offers immunity to most known attack vectors. Hi, Sebastian. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right across the world. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. This is interesting because you're, I think, the third or the fourth English entrepreneur that we have spoken to in the last six weeks or something, I think. I don't know. Suddenly, we've got a rash of... UK entrepreneurs. This is a good thing. Absolutely. It's something I want to see more and more of, so glad to be uh, part of a growing number. What happens when Brexit happens? Well, (laughs) I think that is, uh, you know, a whole other podcast in itself and radio show, so uh, (laughs) avoid going too far down that rabbit hole, but uh, you're quite right. Uh, Many challenges ahead on that front, and... uh, yeah, it's uh, a long way to go before we can uh, really yeah, start sure. solving those and have some certainty. Do you think that? Do you think that the obvious uncertainty that'll happen will affect entrepreneurs in the UK? Uh, there's bound to be some impact, uh, particularly with um, you know VC funding coming into the space. Uh, we already see, just in my circle of friends who are running their own startups, already looking across the Nordics and Europe for for funding outside of the, our remote islands. So. Yeah, I'd imagine there would be a bit of a, a bit of a squeeze there, and opportunities have to be for capital, and it will have to be looked upon the outside. Right now, you've got a background in banking. Why did you switch from a secure, although conservative and stuffy, global investment bank um, mm-hmm. at Goldman's um, to the world of digital assets, which many see as volatile and even highly risky? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, whilst I was still at Goldman Sachs, you know, this uh, this idea of Bitcoin and this Bitcoin chain kept popping up every now and then in various uh, various forms. So, you know, eventually it was something which I decided I need to have a, an opinion on. Uh, so I started doing my own research and the more I read, the more interesting I found it to be. And it really tickled a, an intellectual curiosity for me, uh, particularly when, if you consider that new financial products don't come around very often and they tend to have varying degrees of success, you know, for example, the last probably being exotic credit instruments, which unfortunately collapsed during the 2008 financial crisis. So mm. uh, I decided to pursue my interest in it and dig a bit deeper. And you know, everyone talks about the price of Bitcoin. Uh, that tends to be the, the common headline, which most tend to encounter when they uh, start to come across this space. And you know, I find that to be a bit of a, a misleading indicator, and that was pretty evident during the 2017 bubble uh, when it topped out around $20,000. So, you know, I found other metrics such as the frequency of Wall Street professionals crossing the digital divide 
tech talent gravitating to this industry, the sort of creation of working groups in banks and central banks were more meaningful and they helped to validate my view that there was something here and really I wanted to help shape the industry in some small way. Yeah, it's um, as you as you might know if you've listened to this program, I am a very strong um, blockchain and cryptocurrency, not all cryptocurrency, but cryptocurrency devotee and uh, investor. <laughs> so um, I understand the the excitement and the the um, appeal of the digital space. So. Tell me about Vault. Why was it created? Yeah, so Vault itself was created out of need. So one of the differences between this asset class versus the more traditional um, varieties, which everyone else would be a bit more familiar with, you know, is a very high level of operational risk in this space. And you know, just to give you a number on it, it's you know, roughly $1.3 billion dollars cryptocurrency hacks, theft and mismanagement over the last 10 years. So um, the company founder was, he was exposed to this risk back in 2015 when he himself was starting to dabble with uh, Bitcoin and uh, Ether and uh, the likes. Uh, he also has a background in physical and cyber security for the UK government. So you know, his rationale was, uh, I don't want to be exposed to this risk. And he effectively decided to build his own security architecture in his bedroom to safely secure his digital assets. And that was sort of phase one. And eventually this progressed into a friends and family service and eventually hit enterprise grade when our products hit the market in 2017 for institutional clients. So we now cater for you know, new firms in this space, which can be cryptocurrency market makers, exchanges, funds, but also for the more traditional corporates, such as public listed entities, we even have uh, American self-directed IRAs on board as well. And, you know, we find it's our blend of skills across financial services, risk management and cybersecurity have made us a secure depository for digital assets and our clients sleep easy at night having outsourced this risk to us. So are you saying that the traditional wallets, traditional, <laughs> well, the, the, the wallets that are traditionally used by um, crypto hoarders and um, are not safe? So it's very much down to individuals and their risk appetite. A, a common story we have from new clients we, we bring on board is you know, they were managing an amount of cryptocurrency, whether it's their own or of their clients. And you know, it was fine when they were dealing with tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. But as that number grows significant, then you know the, the risk becomes a bit more apparent and a bit more more than just a nagging uh, thought in the back of their mind. So they tend to uh, get uncomfortable with how quickly that dollar value can scale and they want to outsource uh, the risk. So in, in theory, you know, it's up to the individuals what their risk appetite is, whether to use a traditional wallet or outsource to a custodian who maybe has uh, greater expertise in providing uh, security for these assets. Uh, however, you know, one of the core tenants, I suppose, of Bitcoin was this sort of peer-to-peer -peer transfer of value. And, you know, that, that is definitely a great thing to have. But particularly when you're looking to protect something like the private key of your Bitcoin, then, sure. you know, you have to start thinking about, you know, when you're creating that key, how random is the random number generator? Is there a significant amount of entropy that you're not going to have some hacker trying to just 
brute force attack and replicates uh, by chance what you've uh, produced. So there are a number of, uh, you know, we go on for a couple of hours talking about key security, key generation and key management. But uh, yeah, these are a number of things which for most it's just easier to outsource that and focus on their core business, whether that's trading, whether that's funds management and investing. Uh, I say that's sort of the common path we find our clients tend to take when they come to us. So, uh, if if I put my assets in Vault, um, do you create a unique key for me? Is that how it works? Yeah, that's right. So when we onboard you, uh, effectively we act as depositories. So we'll spin out what's known as a extended public key. So you can have many addresses or child accounts, a bit like sub-ledger accounts on the general ledger sure. in the yeah. traditional terms, and you can deposit your various assets with us, whether it's you know just for yourself or you can have the account-level segregation for all your different underlying clients as well. You know, We offer that level of granularity as well. Yeah, well, I know that we've we've got um, very we've got we've got various wallets and and various codes and buried on all sorts of sticks and safes and just in case you happen to lose them, it's a pain in the ass to say the least. Um, so we've got a lot of listeners who are holding cryptocurrency uh, because we've made a mm-hmm. big thing of it over the last few years. Um, how big do your holdings need to be to be a client of Vault? So, I mean, there's no minimum balance requirements um, to be able to go into our core storage. Um, you know, we have a sort of traditional model of setup fee and then an amount of basis points for the annual management fee. Uh, so really, you know, there's no minimum as such. We do offer a, a new account, which is our prime account, which is uh, a little bit different. That's a, a free service to an extent. Uh, it's free cold storage, but it requires a minimum balance of a uh, million dollars across uh, digital assets to be deposited there. And this is a something new we've offered, which generates a yield for our clients and is a bit of a separate uh, to the, the straightforward cold storage uh, custody. So what's the, what's the cost of having your assets involved? Let's say I've got a million dollars sitting in vault. What's that going to cost me? Yes, yeah, so, I so, uh, there's a setup fee. Um, you know, you're looking at sort of around the ten thousand dollar mark, and then you've got your uh, annual management fee, which is uh, just a small number of basis points. Uh, if you're going on from that, sort how of ongoing s- charges. How, how small is that small number of basis points? <laughs> how small? So you're looking at around yeah, it's less than fifty basis points, oh, okay. and um, in terms of ongoing charges from there, so free to deposit with yep. us all yes. the work is done on the blockchain so we're not going to charge you for that uh, we will charge a small number of basis points single digits for, for withdrawals uh, and again you know these things tend to have uh, economies of scale so if you're doing large amounts then you know there will be a sliding scale on any fees to which we apply okay now crypto's copped a lot of flack for being associated with scams and hacks and Price manipulation, price manipulation in particular. Um, I'm an avid reader, not necessarily a believer, but an avid reader of Quora. And um, you know, there's always stories about how the um, Bitcoin market was manipulated dramatically. I think yesterday's one was with an investment of just thirty million dollars. Um, so, how does Vault protect its users from this risk? How do you 
can you? I mean, scabs yeah, so and hacks, I understand, but... Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, as I say, one of the big risks in our area is definitely operational risk, which is why our clients come to us in the first place is for safe storage and safe custody. So the way in which we achieve that is uh, we create these private keys offline and they're in our secure facilities, which are former nuclear bunkers. They're located 30 meters underground, so extensive physical protection, as well as having a manned security team on site. And within these facilities as well, we have several segregation zones with various security monitoring and fail-safes, uh, effectively to avoid any uh, any attack from hackers looking to penetrate the bunker itself. Um, within the core of this facility is where we house the private key, Yep. And these are stored in a HSM, which is effectively a secure physical computing device, um, something used by many uh, security agencies around the world. On top of that, we have other layers of security. And just to touch on some of these quickly, we have uh, Faraday cages, which protects against electromagnetic interference. Yep. We have military-grade filters to avoid hack attempts through the power supply. And then we also have things which happen outside these facilities, which are more on the operational level. So we'll have uh, processes in place such as biometric checks on our clients when they're looking to withdraw assets. We'll have multi-signature approval to avoid any uh, rogue running on their side of a a compromised individual. And on top of that, silent alarms for what's known as a client compromise procedure. If there is a transaction being raised under duress, you know, we have that all covered as well. So we've uh, we thought through a lot of permutations and different scenarios and attack vectors which uh, exposed to. And, you know, we've covered this off as much as possible. And whilst nothing is unhackable, you know, we've, we see we've reduced that probability as close to zero as it can be. And just on top of that, if you know, things for whatever reason do completely fall apart, we have insurance from Aon and they're happy to insure us for a, a bespoke crime policy of a sizable amount on our holding. It certainly sounds a hell of a lot um, more secure than a wallet. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, are you, are your holdings confidential? I mean, if I, if, if Tim Draper sticks mm-hmm. billions of dollars worth of his um, uh, crypto in, vault um is that confidential from the government or yeah so we have um a company policy to not disclose clients and, and aum and i'll quickly explain why um i mean first of all you know we do provide a security service to our clients and we respect their need to be discreet however on top of that you know, we did announce um sort of back end of last year we did a forbes article with one of their investigative journalists and one of our clients uh, was happy to have their names quoted so they did the piece with us and they revealed who they were fairly sizable um, self-directed IRA and when this piece went to market the hack attempts on our system actually went up 300% within one hour alone and Jeez. following that you know, we sort of had a very real world uh, check on what can happen when we start uh, putting a price on the prize and advertising um you know, the honeypot effectively. So we, we tend to be very tight-lipped on the, the assets under management and who our particular clients are. Yeah. Well, though, the, the people who are the professional hackers and the big guys um, are probably quite aware of where you are and what you've got, just how to get into you. That's the problem. Um, exactly. So how do you see the future of crypto 
um, well, let's start off with um, the acceptance of blockchain is very widespread now. Nearly all the banks, um, insurance companies, stock exchanges and a hell of a lot of other people are in some way using blockchain. So that's um, that future is well and truly secured and probably um, will be the major um, industry norm in the not-too-distant future. So how do you see the future of crypto in general and Bitcoin in particular in relation to the rapid growth in the use of blockchain? Yes, I think, uh, again, blockchain is more of a technology enabler. Sure. Uh, I think it's natural that that is being adopted faster, whereas the cryptocurrencies and digital assets, you know, they have a, a great area of both uh, on the regulatory size um, and in terms of the business aspect as well. Yeah, it's, it's quite difficult to say with certainty under what circumstances can you hold certain coins and the different variety of coins as well? Under what circumstances can you uh, offer certain financial services? Because again, we're largely talking about an unregulated industry and you know, given the space has definitely matured in the last few years, it's no longer the, the old cowboy days as such. Uh, there are a lot of advanced AML and KYC checks in place. Sure. And a lot of uh, risk management frameworks have been pulled across from the traditional banking world, which is you know, it's good to see. Uh, we're also starting to get a bit more clarity from the different uh, key jurisdictions on on the regulation and how to conduct a, a business in in this area. So I think it's it's um, it's normal given the those different uh, different aspects that cryptocurrencies are taking longer to be to be adopted. But uh, nonetheless, you know, all the big banks you, know, you mentioned having, um, whether it's working groups or have projects underway for blockchains and you know, JP Morgan announced the JPM coin as well sure. uh, only this year. Um, you know, they're also uh, sticking close to Bitcoin and Ethereum and the other sort of interesting projects which are more cryptocurrency focused. Uh, so they, you know, they've got pieces on the boards uh, in case they should ever need to dive in at uh, you know at any moment's notice to get involved in this space it's again the regulatory risk is, is key so it's not so much who's the first to, to adopt it's always almost a race for second place as whoever goes first is you know bearing the, the risk and also the rewards so I think it's natural that that is taking uh, a little bit longer but you know we're sort of seeing the staying power of this market and I think it will continue to grow. Yeah, I think it'll grow quicker, more quickly once um, uh, there's a bit more regulation too. Um, the um, the explosion of, of um, uh, blockchain has been very rapid and governments tend to react extremely slowly to almost anything. So, you know, there's obviously going to be a fairly strong lag time. Do you, do you think the... Um, Platform currency, the um, ripples and ethereums and the like, are more likely to grow in the future than most of these other sort of altcoins. Yeah, I think it's sort of natural. You're going to have, you know, you alluded to some of the the top large cap coins, shall we say, which have got a an operating history and you know they're fighting for a specific business case which they're yeah. serving and trying to solve 
Um, but you, you're completely right. There's a large number out there, you know, a little over a couple thousand coins and tokens, all with their various promises and, and stories as to what they're looking to do. But you know, it's, it's clear the vast majority will will disappear. And, you know, particularly at the moment, it can be difficult to decipher what's going to be here in five years and, and what's not. Um, but, you know, when we sort of start to look ahead, you, know, you recognize Bitcoin, again, that's sort of going to be a proven uh, store of value. You have Ethereum, which is starting to offer uh, smart contracts and, and other things on top, which we've seen has had uh, some success as well. You know, the privacy coins, again, there is something interesting there. But again, with regulation and various legal compliance matters, it's still to be decided as to how that eventually falls out. Sure. Uh, but we also have new projects coming on uh, which are working on things like interoperability between blockchains and you know, having them speaking to each other and creating a, almost a, a network of blockchains. Uh, I right. think that's quite key as well. Uh, and again, that's a more that's a newer trend we're seeing in terms of projects addressing that area. So, uh, you know, Bitcoin being the largest, you could probably say with uh, some degree of certainty that would be there in five years, um, given its success and it's definitely the majority of traded volume across the market cap table. Uh, but we'll also see new projects coming on board which uh, have learned from the previous ones and you know, are iteratively better and solving issues which we are seeing in other projects at the moment. Yeah, the biggest problem, uh, the, the biggest advantage of Bitcoin, I think, is the fact that it's this a very limited number um, and uh, once you hit the 23 and a half million that's it so therefore if nothing else it's a collectible um which gives it value apart from anything else um but the limit to it of course is the fact that it's transaction times are ridiculous um so yeah, that's true there are go on. as you say there are um you're correct in terms of you know transactions per second is is uh, single digits. Uh, yeah. it's, 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 t- it's tiny. But, um, you know, I think the Bitcoin in particular, they've, I'd say they've gone about it in the right way in terms of building, uh, call it a layer one solution. You know, it's, it's a network with prioritizing security over anything else. You know, I think you have to get that first and foremost. Things like um, increasing the transactions per second, having the speed, uh, that can kind of be built in later on top. And we're starting to see that in terms of... Uh, yeah. Uh, the Lightning Network and the success that that's been having, um, you know, over time, you mentioned as well the the sort of hard cap of the total amount of Bitcoins that will be made available. You know, that again is looking about 140 years into the future when that problem materializes, which is, you know, there's plenty of time to uh, to address all these issues and given how far we've come in, <laughs> in 10 years since the Genesis block, I, I've got to say I, I'm optimistic. <laughs> what about it? Um, EOS. EOS. Mm. Yeah, so the proof of stake coins. Yeah, we're seeing, again, that's a sort of a hot flavor, particularly this year. Um, you know, firstly, I think Tezos is something which has been popular amongst the client holdings and, um, you know, also alluded to this sort of interoperability and network of blockchains. The, the Cosmos project is another proof of stake coin which we're seeing. Uh, is getting a lot of traction. Um, so, yeah, I think this is something that's coming out more and more, whether it completely replaces proof of work or whether it's just an alternative. Yeah, I, I think, again, that's sort of to be to be decided. What do you think the chances of um, 
a cryptocurrency of some type replacing fiat, say, in the next 10 years? In the next 10 years? Uh, not likely. Um, you know, my view is more that this will grow sort of in parallel with the traditional financial world and as we move forward in time, the, the, the distance between the two will narrow. We're already starting to see that. Uh, the bridge is becoming shorter and they're starting to blend a little bit more into each other. And again, that comes down to the point on regulation. You know, we're starting to get a, an idea now of what falls within the regulatory perimeter and what is outside. And I think as we progress forward, these are going to become more and more intertwined. Um, but again, you know, I don't think we're going to see you know yourself and myself day-to-day using a cryptocurrency as a payment for your everyday items. I think that's still still got some time uh, before we hit that that point. But uh, yeah, we're kind of we're kind of progressing along. What's it going to do to the banks? I mean, the days of banks being able to buy, um, borrow money from you and pay two percent for it and then lend it back to you at eight percent and everything be so slow and take huge fees every time they can get their hands on your money, those days have got to be over, surely. With with um, blockchain, the days of very quick um, processing and minimal fees has got to be upon us, hasn't it? Yes, I think, um, you know, I think that's right. When we look at, you know, you mentioned they're already adapting blockchain as a technology. Again, you know, recognise the the revenue opportunities are being squeezed and that's uh, sort of an ongoing theme of technology encroaching into the banking world over the past few, few decades. But again, you know, they're adapting and adopting blockchain technology and various others to sort of streamline their operations. Again, JP Morgan coin being a, a good example in terms of, uh, you know, that can just minimize their operational costs significantly. And if you consider a, uh, DLT technology like blockchain, you know, that, that is almost a perfect DVP settlement system. So when you want to apply that to something like securities as well, you know, you can almost transact peer to peer and you don't have to worry about uh, you know, failed settlements in the market if you're settling, I don't know, whether it's collateral or you're posting UK treasuries for your, your trades you have at a bank, you don't have to worry about that failing in the market because it's mismatched on the instructions. You don't have to wait T plus two. You know, you just have to wait for, call it six block confirmations, which is sort of the industry practice for Bitcoin. And you yeah. know, that's about one hour. So, yeah, I think they're going to adopt a lot of it to address their own operational needs, which will help streamline cost save. But you're right, on the revenue side, there, there will be a squeeze. In 12 months' time, where do you want Vault to be? What do you... Will there be changes in your business model? Will you just continue to grow um, the model that you've got? Or where do you go in the short term? Yes, I mean, you know, we brought secure custody to the market in 2017 and then recently addressed the issue of secure storage of assets shouldn't necessarily mean a drag on the balance sheet, which led to us offering the prime account so individual uh, clients can earn a yield with assets held uh, on site at vaults. Uh, we started offering staking. You know, we feel that's going to be a, a growing a growing area as well. I think more importantly, you know, we've, we've recognized what we provide first and foremost is a secure environment. And I keep coming back to this point of operational risk in our industry is significant in terms of theft, hack, and mismanagement of, of assets. And you know what we're looking to do, 
whilst we have fast withdrawal times from our custody, you know, we average 45 minutes, we recognize that that's not fast enough for high frequency trading for intraday liquidity as well. So what we're looking to bring to market sort of in the near future and as a project we're collaborating on is um, you can effectively leave your assets in cold storage with us or someone similar. Uh, you have that peace of mind and security, but we would then want to replicate those balances onto a trading network. So effectively you have uh-huh. a mirror account of your assets. Right. And then on that trading network, you can trade the ownership rights in real time and have that real time uh-huh. settlement. And in doing so, you know, you kind of unlock some of the issues around, um, as I mentioned, high frequency trading, yeah. because you can unlock in real time the, the balances are updating, and you just have the custodians sort of settling in the back ends between themselves, which you know reduces the risk in, in a big way that these assets are sure. only moving through the secure cold storage environment rather than you know wallets, and you know we look at exchanges in this in yeah. this world who are frequently targeted. You can kind of avoid all of that scenario and everyone can focus on what they want to do which is trading or offering uh, an exchange with a matching engine and books to have clients trade with one another and you know you really sort of take out the operational headache so that's what we're focusing on and that's what we're looking to bring to market. That sounds pretty exciting. Now one last thing, your career changed from a legacy company like Goldman Sachs to Vault which is obviously very disruptive, it's pretty dramatic. I'm one that I'm a person that believes that um, the days are numbered for not only banking but most companies and in most industries in their current form. Was that your major influence that you thought, well, Goldman Sachs from here is downhill and um, um, digital is uphill? Well, whichever way. Um, what advice would you give to somebody looking to make a career change into a, a different industry or within an industry in this era of sort of disruption and dramatic change. It's, it's a big change to make, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't say for myself it was so much a case of, you know, moving out of a, a world that was on, on the decline and into one that is the growth area. I'd say it was more uh, following something I had a natural interest in. I, you know, I did actually really believe in the the technology and what the products are trying to achieve and mention I'd love to be a part of that myself. But sure. again, just sort of looking at that, that sort of cross uh, going from the old world into the new world and you know, just because one is, is new and replacing the other, there are still lessons which can be brought across from the traditional into the, into the digital. So you know, I mentioned with a robust KYC and AML which is coming in on our side. We have, yeah. uh, we've got former legal experts in banks, compliance teams from banks, you know, there's a lot of uh, symbiosis and lessons can be learned from both sides. So, you know, just because blockchain cryptocurrencies may be the new and the exciting thing, it has a lot to, to learn from the, the old world. And, you know, if you're moving out of that side, you, you're always going to have skills which you can contribute, particularly when the industry is so new, everyone's still figuring it out. You know, we don't even have, um, you know, standard practices on the tech level for blockchain. You know, things are still kind of being improved over time, Bitcoin is still going through improvement procedures over and over again. Sure. So someone coming into this space, they're always going to have something to offer. And yeah, I think that's more generally speaking, when you're looking to do a sharp change, you'll always have something you can you can bring across, whether that's uh, some skill or some framework you've learned, which can be replicated to the new environment. Uh, 
Um, and again, if it's such a dramatic change, then you'll also have this new perspective. You don't come through the sort of well-trodden path and have that conditioning. You can offer some some new insight, which is incredibly valuable to anything which involves problem solving. Again, coming back to uh, the cryptocurrency industry, we're all about problem solving and addressing sure. all the different issues we have. So, yeah, I think that's that's kind of it, really. When you're looking to make a change, you do that honest self-assessment and you try and reconcile that against the industry you want to move into. And on top of that, you know, there's just good practice to carry out some regular self-learning and just be constantly staying on top of these things, understanding the the uh, the sort of the trends which are leading into the into the next the next phase. Fair enough. Are you married with kids or you single or no, no single. Yeah. Well, single. that probably explains it because I was I was trying to imagine how you go home to your wife and kids and say, look, I've, I've <laughs> had this career in good solid global bank for. X number of years, and I think I'll toss that all in, and I'm going to go into the digital money space, which is described everywhere as a scam, and you know whatever. How do you? I was going to say you must be a hell of a good talker if you can <laughs> cross that barrier. <laughs> Sebastian, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now to contact Sebastian and find out more about Vault, and I think you should. I think that. Um, you know, we've often had discussions about the security of of wallets, and Vault um, is the ultimate solution to that. And if you want to find out more, go to Vault, which is V O, the numeral one T dot I O. So that's V O numeral one T dot And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show. And we're coming at you on Voice America Business Network from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. Now, ransomware's paralyzed computer networks across the road, across the road, across the world, and they've caused a minimum of $75 billion in damage. Every 14 seconds, a new business is targeted by ransomware. Now, ransomware is a virus that holds its software systems or data hostage until a ransom is paid for their return. There are an estimated 184 million ransomware attacks in 2017, with the cyber attackers collecting at least $750 million in ransom. And it's a scam that's increasing at about 100% every couple of years. So a typical ransom demand says, you've got seven days to send us your Bitcoin, 
After seven days, we'll remove your private keys and it's impossible for you to receive any of your files. So you lose absolutely everything you've got. And once businesses have hit, they have two options. You either pay the hackers to return the data or you pay ransom recovery companies to retrieve it. Now, the ransom recovery companies promise to help victims regain access to the computers by unlocking their data with the latest technology. That's just frog shit. Instead, these companies charge their clients fees that are far higher than the ransom amounts, and usually they don't inform the victims or local law enforcement agencies. Then they pay the cyber attackers the ransom and obtain your the decryption tools. So <laughs> they just pay the ransom that you could have done and make a profit on it. And they also offer other services such as sealing breaches to protect against future attacks, etc., etc. It's all rubbish. Many firms use aliases for their workers rather than real names in communicating with the victims. Wonder why that would be. Now, payments are sent by the recovery companies from their online wallets to the online wallet of the attackers and often they're laundered through multiple addresses, making them more or less untraceable. In many cases, hackers even treat data recovery firms like partners by offering discounts or deadline extensions to encourage continued cooperation. What a scam. Unless the hackers use an outdated variant for which a decryption key is publicly available, the quickest and most effective path is to pay the ransom because most ransomware strains have encryptions that are much too strong to break. Now, the problem is that while there's nothing illegal about negotiating with hackers, paying ransoms perpetrates the extortion industry and cyber attackers who routinely collect tens of millions from these data recovery companies have every incentive to continue to do it. Even more problematic is that much of this ransom money ends up in the coffers of international terror groups and crime syndicates. So it's easy to take the position that no one should pay a ransom in a ransomware attack because such payments do encourage future attacks. But it's much harder, however, to take that position when it is your data that has been encrypted and the future of your company and all of the jobs of your employees are in peril. It's a serious moral dilemma. So if you've been hacked, ensure you deal with an ethical, transparent company. And if you find your ransomware recovery firms paid a ransom while pretending otherwise, it constitutes deceptive business practices that are prohibited by the Federal Trade Commission. Contact the FBI. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Anybody can do the ordinary. And if you always try to be normal, you will always be boring and you'll never know how amazing you can be. So I hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I will be broadcasting from Mexico City where I'm going down there for a few days to give a couple of speeches. In the meanwhile, have a great week. 
continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.